through the hallways of academia and on the face of the moon the footprints of conquest haven't left us any room to say Greetings and welcome to the 21st edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News for this Thursday, January 4th, 2018. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. The team at WLRN produces a monthly news program to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of politics, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement. Today's podcast looks at gynocentric and matrifocal societies throughout history. Women weren't always under the boot of patriarchy, despite what male archaeologists and historians may claim. It is only through understanding our herstories that we can move forward towards a more feminist future. We will hear interview segments with Max Dashu, feminist women's historian and the founder of the woman-focused Suppressed Histories Archives, Rianne Eisler, prominent systems theory scholar who wrote The Chalice and the Blade, and Starhawk, influential writer and theorist of feminist neo-paganism. Today's insightful commentary comes to us from Sekhmet Shiaul, who reflects on the meaning and possibility of gynocentric culture in the 21st century and beyond. Before we dive into today's discussion of ancient matrifocal societies, here's Thistle Pedersen with the headlines for Thursday, January 4th, 2018. According to a report by the Daily Mail from December 20th, hundreds took to the streets of Malmö in southern Sweden to protest after three teenage girls were brutally gang-raped by men and police told women to stay indoors. An unknown number of male assailants raped one of the girls in a children's playground in the early hours of December 16th. The following day, Malmo police issued a warning to local women not to go outside alone at night and to walk in pairs or use taxis. According to a more recent report from December 30th, another gang rape has occurred in the same city by multiple unidentified male assailants, but this time the woman they raped was over the age of 18. Malmo police believe it's unlikely the series of crimes are somehow connected. Referring to the two December attacks, which appear to share the same pattern, Malmo police spokesman Nils Norling said, You cannot immediately say that they are linked to each other, but you cannot rule it out either. Unquote. While Malmo struggles to cope with the wave of sexual assaults, a Swedish court has sparked controversy with its recent decision to release three men accused of raping a woman in the Stockholm suburb of Fitchja in 2016. The woman's lawyer described the ruling as an embarrassment for Sweden's legal system. 
the court found the evidence that included torn clothes and sperm samples was simply insufficient for someone to be convicted. Unquote. The court argued in its summary that it's impossible to establish the cause of the woman's injuries, skin discoloration, and scrapes that she said were inflicted as a result of the incident. The decision triggered protests with activists taking to Malmo's streets with signs reading, No Rapists on Our Streets, and calling on Prime Minister Stefan Levin to tackle the problem. With police seemingly failing to make headway in finding and prosecuting anyone in the attacks, local activists decided to take matters in their own hands and have organized nighttime street patrols to reassure neighbors while hoping to keep women safe from all kinds of abuse. Erica Garner, an activist for social justice, died on December 30th, days after suffering a heart attack, according to her mother, Esau Snipes. Erica was the eldest daughter of Eric Garner, the man who died by a police chokehold in New York in 2014. Her father's death contributed to the sparking of the Black Lives Matter movement, a cause which Erica herself rallied for. Garner, 27, suffered from the effects of an enlarged heart after giving birth to her son three months ago, Snipes said. Quote, I warned her every day, you have to slow down, you have to relax and slow down, she said. Quote, she was a fighter, she was a warrior, and she lost the battle, Snipes said of her daughter. Quote, she never recovered from when her father died, she is in a better place, Unquote. Police are working to try to unravel the mystery of who killed a black woman, her same-sex partner, and her two young children. The bodies of these victims were found in a riverfront apartment house the day after Christmas near Albany, New York. Though this crime has the clear markings of a hate crime against lesbians, major news media are not reporting it as such. Police identified the victims as Shanta Myers, 36, Brandy Mells, 22, Jeremiah Myers, 11, and Shanice Myers, 5. Shanta Myers, the mother of both children, was in a relationship with Mel's, the police chief said. Investigators declined to confirm the method of death or any details regarding the scene of the crime, but Troy Police Chief John Tedesco was quoted saying, After being in this business for 43 years, I can't describe the savagery of a person who would do this, unquote. A property manager found the bodies on December 26 after being asked to check on the welfare of the residents of the apartment, one of five in a house located in the city's Lansingburg section along the Hudson River just north of Albany, police said. Quote, I don't think there's any doubt that a person who committed this crime is capable of anything, unquote, Tedesco said, adding that police don't believe there was an imminent danger to the public. Police didn't know when the slayings occurred, but Tedesco said he hoped autopsies being conducted would provide clues. State police were involved in the investigation, along with New York parole officials, Tedesco said. Police in Iran's capital announced on December 28th that they will no longer arrest women for failing to observe the Islamic dress code in place since the 1979 revolution. The announcement signaled an easing of punishments for violating the country's conservative dress code, as called for by the young and reform-minded Iranians who helped re-elect President Hassan Rouhani, a relative moderate, early in 2017. 
But hardliners opposed to easing such rules still dominate Iran's security forces and judiciary, so it was unclear whether the change would be fully implemented. Quote, those who do not observe the Islamic dress code will no longer be taken to detention centers, nor will judicial cases be filed against them, unquote. Tehran police chief Hossein Raimi was quoted as saying. The semi-official Tasnim News Agency said violators will instead be made to attend classes given by police. It said repeat offenders could still be subject to legal action and the dress code remains in place outside the capital. Last month, Irma Yolanda Chokkak traveled from Guatemala with 10 other indigenous women to the financial district of Toronto, Canada, to testify before a group of lawyers representing the Canadian mining company Hud Bay. It was the first time Chokkak had ever left Guatemala, but the story that she and 10 other Maya Katsi women had come to tell is at the heart of a precedent-setting legal challenge pitting indigenous people against a transnational corporation and which has cast a chill over Canada's vast mining industry. The case centers on allegations dating back to 2007 when the women say hundreds of police, military, and private security personnel linked to a Canadian mining company descended on the secluded village of Lote Ocho in eastern Guatemala. A few days earlier, security personnel had set dozens of homes ablaze in a bid to force the villagers off their ancestral lands, according to court documents. The 11 women say they were raped repeatedly by the armed men. Chokkak, three months pregnant at the time, was with her 10-year-old daughter when she was seized by the men, some of whom were in uniform. Twelve of the men raped her, she said. She later suffered a miscarriage. The women link the violence to the nearby Phoenix Mine, one of the largest nickel mines in Central America, and the Guatemalan subsidiary that was overseeing its operations. At the time, the subsidiary was controlled by Vancouver-based Sky Resources. In 2008, Sky was acquired by Toronto's Hud Bay Minerals, who sold the mine to a Russian company in 2011. A team of Toronto lawyers seized on the Canada Connection, filing civil lawsuits that argue that the Canadian parent company, later acquired by Hud Bay, was negligent when it came to monitoring the actions of its Guatemalan subsidiary. The lawsuits may offer a legal means of addressing a long-standing obstacle for human rights campaigners, the perceived legal disconnect between multinationals and the local subsidiaries who carry out their operations abroad. Quote, These are some of the first attempts in Canadian legal history to try to bring some accountability to a Canadian mining company for horrific human rights abuses in another country. Unquote, said Corey Wanless of Klippenstein's Barristers and Solicitors, the Toronto law firm representing the women. The novel approach scored its first victory in 2013 when a court in Ontario dismissed an application by Hud Bay to throw out the case. The decision marked the first time in Canada that foreign claimants had been granted access to the courts in order to pursue Canadian companies for alleged human rights abuses abroad. The Guatemalan women last month traveled to Toronto for the case's discovery phase, fielding hours of questions from lawyers for the Canadian company Hud Bay.
Quote, it's difficult to sit down and face them, said Chokkak, speaking through a translator because she only speaks Kechui. To sit down in front of those who caused this pain to me and my community is very difficult, unquote. Though the case will likely take years before it reaches the court, the strength and courage of the 11 women behind the lawsuit has given rise to a new precedent that could shift corporate behavior around the world, unquote, said Corey Wanless of Klippenstein's Barristers and Solicitors, the Toronto law firm representing the women. A feminist campaigner has accused the Labour Party of, quote, an appalling Orwellian betrayal of women after she was asked to leave a Labour Christmas party because her views on transgender rights were making guests, quote, feel unsafe. Venice Allen, 42, a single mother from South London, has been campaigning for a wider debate on the government's plans to allow a person to self-declare their chosen gender. Ms. Allen said she was asked to leave the Labour Women's Network Christmas Party after meeting Lily Madigan, the transgender teenager whose recent appointment as a women's officer has divided labor. A Labour Women's Network spokeswoman said, quote, It's important that all Labour Women's Network events are a safe and welcoming space for all those in attendance. Sadly, following a number of complaints, we had no choice but to politely ask an individual to leave. Ms. Allen said, quote, I wanted to speak to other Labour women about the proposals to change the Gender Recognition Act. It was an exceptionally safe space. How can they keep on silencing and censoring women like this? In a recent interview with British TV Channel 4, Madigan responded to the question of how he will represent women as the new women's officer with a statement about the validity of his experiences as a woman. And what's your message to people sitting here now who sort of doubt whether you can be a leader speaking up on behalf of all women? What would you say in a nutshell? I'd say that my experiences are mine and they're perfectly valid. Do you agree with no platforming feminists who you believe are not debating things in the right way? Um, definitely, yeah, I, I think there's a place for no platforming. Um, I know my university does it as the most. Um, I think if people are going to get up on stages and say things that are harmful to people like me, then we have a responsibility to not give them that platform in the first place. Isn't that shutting them down, though? Uh, there's a difference between debate and hate speech. On Tuesday, December 26th, Juniper Renee, customer of a vegetarian restaurant and feminist bookstore in Bridgeport, Connecticut, called Bloodroot, reportedly enthusiastically told the lesbian owners about a trans community she is excited about starting up in Massachusetts. Noelle Fury and Selma Miriam are the elderly lesbian couple that owns Bloodroot and have been involved with the space since March of 1977 when it was founded. In response to Ms. Renee's description of the new trans community starting up, the owners of Bloodroot stated that they are in favor of women-only spaces. This was enough to cause Ms. Renee to post on Facebook that Bloodroot is owned by, quote, horrifying, violent turfs, which led to the restaurant's Facebook and Yelp pages being barraged with bad reviews calling for a boycott and accusing them of hateful bigotry. Many feminists have also taken to reviewing Bloodroot in recent days. By December 31st, over 1,000 reviews appeared on their Facebook page. 
prior to the attack by trans activists, the reviews numbered around 300. At the time of this report, the reviews feature of Bloodroot's Facebook page has been disabled and the owners published a statement which has over a thousand likes and almost 200 shares. So far, the page seems to be keeping the harassers at bay. The final words of the owners read, quote, Regardless of how you feel about Bloodroot's stand on this, we will continue to be a welcoming space for all types of people, including those that are transgender, and treat everyone with respect. If you feel our explanation and response is inadequate for you, then you should not patronize us, unquote. It is too soon to tell if the attacks will negatively impact business at Bloodroot, but the owners wanted WLRN listeners to know that they can buy their cookbooks and calendar online at bloodroot.com cookbooks. The new cookbook and 2018 calendar will be available sometime in January. In other news, feminists made inroads into progressive circles in December with the publication of a full-page ad in the progressive magazine calling for an end to the harassment, threats, and no-platforming of radical feminists who question transgender ideology by segments of the transgender community. The ad was signed by 54 self-described socialists and progressives, both men and women from a dozen states and four countries, including radical and lesbian feminists, Green Party members, trade union leaders, anti-racist activists, and members of socialist groups. Prominent signers included author and social critic Chris Hedges, novelist Marge Piercy, historian Max Dashu, and second-wave feminists Carol Hanisch and T. Grace Atkinson. Also included among the signers are trans sexual blogger Miranda Yardley, and trans YouTuber Rhea N.T. Jones. The ad declares that, quote, recent demonization, intimidation, and threats of violence against radical and lesbian feminists by certain segments of the transgender community and their supporters have had a chilling effect on the ability to engage in open discussion and debate on complex issues of sex, gender, and sexuality, a debate that is sorely needed in order to build an effective, unified movement. Included in the ad is the story of Anne Manashi, a longtime feminist and social justice activist who initiated the signature ad campaign after trans activists labeled her a Nazi and rapist and tried unsuccessfully to get her fired from her job for merely asserting that persons born female are oppressed on the basis of sex. Several other incidents of harassment are also described in the ad, such as the no-platforming of Julie Bindle, the attacks by trans activists at the Vancouver Women's Library, and the violent threats against Tasha Rose Hodges that forced her to drop out of a race for school board. The ad concludes as follows. Quote, we, the undersigned, as supporters of feminism and progressive politics, believe that regardless of one's views on gender, the tactics of name-calling, no-platforming, and threats to individual feminists' jobs, livelihoods, and personal safety must be wholeheartedly rejected by progressives. Such tactics have no place on the left. When asked about the significance of this ad, Anne Menashe responded to WLRN with this statement. It shows that the left is not a monolith, that there are many people uh, on the left, progressive activists, socialists, that agree with us. There are others who are open to uh, democratic discussion and debate and are eager for it, and that we can build from there. Uh, we don't have to be as isolated as we've been I think it's start, uh, things are starting to break open.
The ad has been republished on the website of The Old and New Project, an anti-capitalist revolutionary collective based in New York. She is woman who sees. She is woman who sees. She is crone woman, skull and bone woman, moss and stone woman, crone woman, crone woman. Deep earth cave mother, dark moon blood mother, blood mother, blood mother. She is woman who knows, she is woman who knows. She is hidden woman, she is shadow woman. Midnight cloak woman, raven croak woman, owl, bat, moth woman, owl woman, owl woman. She is woman who waits, she is woman who waits. She is death mother, she is birth mother, earth mother, earth mother, earth birth, death mother. She is north woman. Winter storm woman, ancient hands woman, wisdom woman, old woman, old woman. She is woman who sees, she is woman who sees. She is night woman, she is night woman, woman. That was Night Woman by Carolyn Hillier. Next, we'll hear a clip from an interview that Sekhmet Shiawal did with Max Dashu, in which the founder of the Suppressed Histories Archives discusses some of her favorite matrifocal, matrilineal societies in history, and what they can teach us. Ms. Dashu is the author of Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Religion, from 700 to 1100. Her coloring book featuring goddesses and other female figures from the Suppressed Histories Archives, titled Diosophy, can be ordered from voleda.net. One of the things that I think we have to realize is that it's indigenous societies that where the most egalitarian cultures for women have existed in the last, at least the last millennium of time. It's not to say that all indigenous cultures are egalitarian, because there are patriarchies in Papua New Guinea and a lot of other places, but all of the societies that are matrilineal and have a woman-centered cultural construct. You know, Peggy Sande wrote a book called Women at the Center, writing about the Minangkabau culture in Sumatra. Um, that is, you know, once we get knowledge that there are these other ways of doing things, then it doesn't become anymore a case of women are like this and men are like that. It becomes, oh, look, we're looking at systems. And we're looking at layers and layers of historical changes and, and devolutions, I would call them. I mean, it's not, you know, an evolutionary model. It's really this, this pileup of maladaptive culture which enforces domination by sex, by class, by ethnicity, which becomes the racial caste system. And so all of those layers are related to each other, but... A lot of people now can't see past it. They just think this is how things are, and they assume that it's always been that way. I can't tell you on on the Suppressed Histories page. Every, it seems like every time I post something about genocide of Native people or anything about the European invasion or about slavery, then you've got people coming out of the woodwork and men mostly, but not always, informing you that well, you know, it's always been this way. All societies 
commit genocide. All societies have had slavery, and that's just not true. You know, so these beliefs function in a way to make people think, well, there's no other way to do things. And we desperately need to figure out how to do things differently. <laughs> you know, I mean, at this crucial moment where we're just slammed up against uh, the very threat, the threat to continued survival of the planet, not just human society, you know, we, we have to do it differently. <laughs> and so I think that we need to be able to have a cultural vision that allows us to see that there are different ways of doing things. And so the mother right cultures are one group, not one way, but one group of uh, ways of doing things that have patterns within them that can be of, um, of, of um, trying how to say this, you know, can be models even. You know, they are collectively oriented. They are not based on nuclear families for the most part, but really more of a, a collective social motherhood. So there's not one woman with all the kids hanging off of her and she's got to hold it all up no matter what. But there's a whole, a whole framework. The social fabric is centered around the life support system. You know, and so that means that all the sisters are mothers. You see this in some societies. You know, it's like the ants, what we would call the ants, are called mother. You know, and especially any woman who has taken a child to her breast also becomes a mother to that child. You know, and so women's life nurturing power in many different ways functions as a maker of kinship. Not the artificial kingship, which is the legal bond. This is marriage, right? The patriarchal way of doing it is to have a, a bunch of laws administered in a great majority of cases by only males. And then the laws will encode uh, sexual double standard because in order to have fatherhood as the basis for a social system, to have patrilineal society, then they they have to control women's sexuality to do that because you can't know who the father is for certainty. You know? So then they, they start having all these dire punishments, sometimes more so, sometimes less so, but uh, to force women to comply with uh, sexual fidelity to one man, to chastity codes, and all that mess about virginity. You know, the obsession with is she a virgin or is she not a virgin and she's going to die if she isn't one in some cultures or be cast out and join the ranks of the prostituted. You know, it's like there, there are very, there are certain kinds of uh, outcomes that are already built into the system for women who don't go with the program. What are your, or some of your favorite examples of woman-centric, woman-respecting societies? Well, the most well, I really like the most well that I mentioned earlier. And there are some cultures that aren't very well known, and I don't have a whole lot about them, but it's just very amazing to me to realize that the Wichita in the Southern Plains, I mean, this is, you know, I mean, I grew up in the United States, and there are all these patches of land uh, around here that had very different cultural patterns before the conquest. And the Wichita were matrilineal, matrilocal, and the women built these amazing houses that were thatched out of prairie grass. So 
fall. You know, like maybe the height of a, of a few stories, but it's all bent saplings tied together, and then they they went around with um, branches and tied those around. It so they made a framework, and then they would climb up on it and thatch it from top to bottom. And so you know, it's just like I don't know enough about them, but you know, they exist. The fact that this existed is just amazing to me. I like to look at the really ancient cultural records. Uh, you know, we have this intensely woman-centric, like, from the, the Neolithic societies, you know, and, and really the, the primary images we have out of the culture. It's not just that they're female. It's that the kind of female they are, they're not the simpering, coy, sexualized, sex object type of images that we're so used to. But they're women who are strong, they're fully present in their bodies. You know, their bodies can be shown very wide. Um, they are looking out at you in kind of a bold way. It's just like it's, it's a very different feeling. You know, so we can't really say, oh, maybe we will someday be able to tell whether or not they were matrilineal cultures. You know, if, if the genetic influence starts coming, uh, the evidence starts coming through. Um, what else? There's a, a island called Vanetinai, which is in the way out uh, northeast of Australia in the Coral Sea, that has uh, the anthropologist uh, Maria Lepowski, who wrote the book on this, was talking about how most matters, there's effectively no difference around sex. And, you know, women could trade, women could travel, women could do things, they could become a jaja, which means a big giver. These people are the ones that give things away to others. And so women, it wasn't just the men who could do that, but the women also. And, you know, you have your, your Pueblo cultures, which be really, really interesting to see what they were like in the 1200s before the Spanish conquest. But those are matrilineal societies where women are very primary artistic producers and have their own ceremonial societies, and the houses are built and owned by the women. And uh, beautiful cultures, very complex, symbolic uh, language. I, I call it the scripture of signs, what the women are painting on the, the huge water pots from Laguna and Acoma and some of the other pueblos. Um, then in Africa, there's so many examples, but there is some very interesting matrilineal societies in Malawi. And this is a part of the world. I mean, it's not coincidentally the most fascinating female positive societies are ones you've never heard of, you know. And it, it's sort of like this is where sexism and racism converge mm -hmm. because, you know, we don't get real African history. We don't get an accounting for African culture. But in Malawi... The country itself was named for the pool of the sacred python. And there was a line of prophetesses among the Chewa people called Makewana, which means mother of children, the title. Uh, not a biological mother, but a conceptual mother for the whole community. And she is the rain shrine python priestess. And so 
these women were not chosen because they came from a particular family, but they were chosen by spirit so that after one of the Makriwanas dies or retires, after a while, a young girl, well, I hate that phrase, but, you know, uh, maybe a teenage girl would start having symptoms of spirit sickness. And people would start noticing and say, okay, she's behaving really strangely. And then there, there'll be a series of, of tests they would do to see, is this, is this our new Makiwana? And then when they found her, they would install her. And so this was not the lineage in the sense of descended one from the other, you know, um, familially, but a lineage of priestesses that went on and on and on. And there's a lot of these in southeastern Africa, in Zimbabwe also, even where uh, patriarchy has been around for quite a while. The, the Shona people are a patriarchal society, but they had this female spirit power of these prophetesses. And so there are various named examples, like the Nehanda, a princess who founded a lineage of lion oracles. So uh, Southeast Africa is really interesting, and, and all of Southern Africa, actually, you have a very strong female shamanic uh, tradition, even when they're not uh, anymore a mother culture. I'm going to be doing the, the uh, nature cultures uh, visual talk as part of my online course, so I'll have a visual talk about that uh, sometime coming up this next year, between now and, and June. Uh, I'm going to be doing that one. I have a lot of work to do to bring it up to current speed, but I think that there's nothing like being able to just visually see what women look like in societies that are either not patriarchal or at the very least we could say less patriarchal. You know, matrilineal mm -hmm. is not my only criterion for an egalitarian culture. You know, because you've also got, uh, is it a matrilocal society? You know, is it a polygynous society? You know, there, there are cultures in, in Southern Africa that are matrilineal, but the woman goes to live with, with the husband. So she's separated from her kin, and that counts for a lot. You know, and she doesn't have access land so she becomes as a farmer she's the one that's doing the farm work uh, she has to pay her husband a share of her harvest because it's his land that she's farming things like that but um, you can see that there's, this is something that you it's hard to make really broad generalizations because there's so much complexity mm -hmm. to all of it Historically, economically, you know, ethnically, you know, all the variations that exist. So speak out, speak over, speak under, speak through the noise. Speak loud so I can hear you. I want to know you. I want to hear your real voice. I want to hear your real voice. The following clip was taken from an interview Julia did with Starhawk.
Starhawk is the author or co-author of 12 books, including the essential neo-pagan text, The Spiral Dance, a rebirth of the ancient religion of the great goddess. Since its publication in 1979, The Spiral Dance has become a classic resource on the goddess movement, modern witchcraft, and spiritual feminism. In the 1970s, Starhawk trained with Z. Budapest, a feminist separatist who established female-only Dianic Wicca in the United States. In the 80s, Starhawk worked with Donna Reed Cooper to create the Women's Spirituality Series, a trilogy of films available in their entirety on the National Film Board's YouTube channel. Known for her visionary mysticism and ecstatic consciousness, Starhawk shares with us her philosophy of harmony with nature. How do we actually know that these communities or these societies even existed? Well, there's a tremendous amount of evidence for the existence of matrifocal communities. There's art, there's sculpture, and there's other kinds of archaeological remains. Uh, Maria Gimbutas, the archaeologist, collected masses of evidence back in the 80s and the early 90s, and unfortunately she died in the early 90s, and after that there was kind of a backlash against her. But interestingly enough, the archaeologist Colin Renfrew, who's one of her greatest critics, has now admitted that at least one part of her theory is correct and is backed up by all the genetic evidence. So a lot of us are hoping this is going to open up people to actually take a more fair look at what she found. This summer I was in southern Germany, for example, and there are these caves there that people have lived in for 45,000 years, and some of the earliest sculptures you find are these female images of women, very fecund women's bodies, all through the period of the Neolithic, when people were beginning to do agriculture, again, you find female images as the image of the sacred, of the divine. And you find evidence in places like Chatelhoyuk, one of the earliest cities that was excavated in Anatolia, peninsula that's now Turkey, goes back to 7500 BCE. You know, what you see there is not big temples and palaces and evidences of hierarchy, but you see smaller shrines that are not that different from houses and burials that show that women and men were roughly equal and that there weren't great class divisions. Those are some of the ways that we know that these societies existed. The other way that we know is by looking back at mythology and looking at the stories and understanding the ways that they have changed. In my book, Truth or Dare, I looked at some of the mythology from ancient Sumer, and you can see in the earliest writing, which is already in a time when patriarchy is beginning to encroach, but where there's still a lot more memory of an earlier time, you see that the sacred liturgy is all about sex and food. You have the goddess singing the praises of her vulva, and her handmaidens bathing her and praising her breasts and her vulva. You see male sexuality is compared to a plow or compared to something that brings the land alive, that causes the lettuce to grow by the water. There's no identification of that with aggression or violence. And then, a couple thousand years later, you have a very different 
creation myth. You get the myth of Marduk and Tiamat, where Marduk is the war god, and he slays the primal serpent, Tiamat, carves her up and creates the world out of her dismembered body. So those are some of the ways that we can look back and say, oh, all right, this all makes sense if we understand that originally we had a very different society, even in Europe and the Middle East, where people believed that the forces of life and the forces that create and sustain and regenerate life are what is sacred. And often that was seen as the great mother seen in female form. And then later there were these invasions and incursions of more patriarchal cultures and more warlike cultures because war and patriarchy go together. What do you think shifted the world's populations from matrifocal to patriarchy? You have to understand that there's no one process that changed the world. You know, we're looking at multiple different shifts in different places around the world over time. In the Middle East, uh, you had invasions of patriarchal cultures, but you also had a process that went on of culture becoming larger, having huge projects like irrigation projects where you could have war by conquest and have a use for your captives and your slaves. And so there was a shift to, again, a more warlike culture because some people benefited from that. And wherever you have war, you tend to have patriarchy because patriarchy is really the ideology that supports war. Um, In order to have war, you have to get someone to fight it, and usually that's men and you have to motivate them to fight it. And the way that men get motivated primarily is both by promising them women as the spoils of war and by making it so awful to be perceived as a woman or womanlike that it's better to like put yourself in mortal danger than be seen as a coward or be seen like a woman. So you need these deep separations between the roles of men and women and you need to devalue women's sexuality and women's agency so that they can be available basically as the rewards for warlike men. What do you think these relationships were like before patriarchy came on? I think that they were a lot more egalitarian, a lot more the way they are in many, many cultures today. Uh, many indigenous cultures where women and men both have important roles and are respected. In some of those cultures, the roles are distinct, but each has power in their own roles. So, for example, in the Six Nations, the Iroquois, women have their sphere and men have their sphere, but women are really seen as the ones who ultimately make the important decisions for the tribe. You know, many, many indigenous cultures, especially those that involve hunting and gathering and living very close to the earth, which actually everybody did until very recently because there weren't any other options, they're often based very much on sharing and on community and on feeling yourself as part of the community. 
not on amassing wealth and power, but on how much you can give away and how much you care for others. There was always a sense that the community is involved in helping to raise and socialize children. Uh, Louisa Tish, who's a wonderful Yoruba priestess, in her book, Jambalaya, writes about growing up in New Orleans and how, like, if you did something wrong, everybody would be there. You know, every auntie on the street would be out there telling you exactly what you had done wrong and scolding and calling your mother. This isolation of the nuclear family is something that's really very recent and very destructive. How do you think menstruation was viewed way back then? Well, I think that it was seen as a time of power. And again, there's still indigenous cultures that think of it that way. So women were considered to be full of spiritual power and life force energy at that time. And I think women probably had the menstrual hut or the special place that they went and Without a lot of electric lights and a lot of things that change time and day, women were probably more tuned into the moon cycles and menstruating often together. That became a time of sisterhood in a place where women got to go, hang out. People would bring them food and they'd get a little monthly rest and a chance to connect and talk with all the other women. You know, in our uh, tradition, we do a ritual for young girls when they first begin to menstruate, uh, like many indigenous cultures do. And we take a girl and her mother out to the beach or up on a hillside and tie their hands together, and they run together as far as a mother can run. And then when she gets tired, um, we cut them apart and let the daughter run on alone. And then we bring her back and have an afternoon where we spend the time like sharing stories about menstruation, about our own menstruation, giving her helpful advice and giving her gifts. And then the day ends with a feast that's prepared by the men, a feast of red foods and a celebration for the whole community because we want young girls to know that There are men in this world that can see this and understand this as something positive and as a sign of their coming into womanhood. Do you think men had a similar role in matrifocal societies? I think, you know, that both women and men did lots of things. I think men have great capacity to be nurturing as well as women do. And I think women have a great capacity to be wild and aggressive assumptions about what those gender roles should be, again, are part of how patriarchy functions. So the men weren't subordinated. They weren't in the position that women are now. No, I think it's hard for people to understand that you can actually have a society where nobody has to be subordinated. When women were in positions of power... Did they behave the way that men do today? Uh, Again, I think that the way both women and men behave today is a product of a culture that's patriarchal, that's capitalist, that requires a certain kind of cutthroat ruthlessness from some people and submission from others. So I think absent that culture, I don't think either women or men would behave in that way. 
how do you think we can make a move toward a more magical um, society? Do you think that would be a good idea in the first place? Mm, I definitely think it would be a good idea. A magical society is a society where we are connected deeply to nature and the natural world. So I think one thing people can do is make some time each day to be in nature. And that doesn't necessarily mean being, you know, out in the wilderness somewhere. It could mean just being in your backyard or taking time to stop and observe what's growing out of cracks in the parking lot where you are. But some time to really stop and look and listen and connect to the natural world. And when you do that, then I think nature begins speaking to us as well. And that's the root of all magic. Can you talk about your book titled The Fifth Sacred Thing? In many, many traditions around the world and in indigenous cultures, there are four sacred elements of air, fire, water, and earth. And then there's the fifth, which is spirit. You know, there's a kind of underlying question, and that question is, uh, how does a peaceable society defend itself from violence without becoming what it's fighting against? What do you think we can learn from reading that book? Well, I think when you write fiction, it's a wonderful process because you're not necessarily having to tell everybody something. It's more like you're exploring an idea, but you're exploring it through characters you create and the choices that they make. So it's an emotional experience, not just an intellectual one. I think we need to appeal to emotions. Um, Emotion and imagination. Yeah. Is this a job solely for women, or do you think men can help here? I think it's a job for everyone, and I think it's a process that ultimately benefits everyone because I don't think that men actually really benefit from the current society that we have. I don't think it allows men to be their fullest selves any more than it allows women to be their fullest selves. So, yeah, I think it's something that women and men and people who might not identify as either or whatever, all of us are in it together. Is there anything else that you would like to add for our listeners who are largely lesbian and radical feminists? I think this is a very exciting time to be alive. It's a time where women's voices and women's visions really need to be heard. I encourage us all to speak up and take our power and put it out there and create a world that works for everybody. I sing soft and low Just like the moon Over the snow I hear icicles falling In the dark In the dark We're just like Anyone else We just want a little bit Of sun for us Two to get lost in the glow 
That was Patty Griffin with her song Icicles. Next up, we'll hear excerpts from an interview Thistle did with Rianne Eisler. Rianne Eisler is an eminent social scientist, attorney, and women's human rights activist who pioneered the recognition of women's rights as human rights. She is best known for her writings, including the international bestseller The Chalice and the Blade, translated into 26 languages and now in its 57th U.S. printing, with a new epilogue. She founded the first Center on Women and the Law in the United States wrote the Equal Rights Handbook on the proposed Equal Rights Amendment, and is the author of other award-winning books as well as hundreds of articles and book chapters. To hear the full interview Thistle did with Miss Eisler, find it by clicking our podcast tab and then choose Interviews on the WLRN WordPress site. I think a burning question for a lot of feminists is, what is the origin of patriarchy? How did it get started if it's not the natural order of things, which I would argue that most feminists do not believe that patriarchy is inherent within our species, but rather is deeply socialized and constructed socially. Why? Why patriarchy? How did it get started and how long ago? I'm not either a technological nor environmental determinist. I mean, what happened in history happened. It doesn't mean it had to happen. I think there's a great deal of evidence that at least in the areas around the Mediterranean, the shift began with the incursions and invasions, really, of nomadic uh, herders uh, who brought with them this uh, not only domestication of animals, but uh, what we might call the domestication of women. And that from there on, as I write in my book, The Chalice and the Blade, as well as in my the next book that I wrote, Sacred Pleasure, when civilization resumed, because it was really interrupted by this, when it resumed its course, it was more in the direction of domination rather than partnership. So a matrifocal society, these matrifocal societies existed approximately... 5,000, but even longer ago than 5,000 years ago, before patriarchy really took hold. What were these matrifocal societies like? How were they organized and ordered? Well, this is a point that I make in my work, which is that we are in a semantic trap where the assumption is that you either dominate or you're dominated. You either rule or you're ruled. And that the real uh, alternative to patriarchy is not matriarchy, uh, but what I call a partnership society. And the indications really are, if you look at the archaeology, uh, there are no signs that men 
were in the same semi-enslaved position that you find that women began to be in, in you know, in, in the later uh, parts of prehistory, in the late Neolithic as well as then in most places other than Minoan Crete, in the Bronze Age. What you find, for example, and it's interesting that the archaeologist who excavates Tzatalhuyak uh, at this point, he, he wrote in the Scientific American that there are no signs, really, that being born male or female had any impact on either nutrition or on status. And he wrote it with sort of a wonder, because we've all, as you said, been socialized to believe that that's just how it is. It's either divinely or naturally ordained that men rule women. Yeah. If you recreated what the what these matrifocal societies, pre-patriarchal societies, what their daily lives were like, like what were the roles that men and women were playing, and if, what did they do when they got up in the morning, who went hunting, hunting, who went gathering, what were the tasks, the daily tasks they were engaged in, how were their societies organized? Could you talk about that a little bit? Yes, of course. Well, the clues that we have, and again, this is a a new, relatively new branch of anthropology, the study of foraging societies. You know, the standard, or it used to be, because it's beginning to fortunately change, at least for some scholars, the standard social biological and to some extent also evolutionary psychology dogma is that, well, uh, the problems that we have today of domination, of, of male violence, etc., all stem from the time that we lived as foragers, you know, millennia, right, uh, in the savannah. Well, what we're finding out through the study of uh, contemporary foraging societies that actually these societies really orient much more to the partnership side of the continuum. And what we find from them is that they are much more peaceful, that while women and men uh, tend to have some differences in roles, one practice there is what we would call, what scholars call alloparenting. In other words, that it wasn't only the woman who was supposed to care for the young, uh, for the babies and the uh, toddlers, but that uh, men did too, do too, actually, but so do also do other members of the group. So we can infer. I, I think that this is perhaps because, you know, anything in prehistory is really interpretation, isn't it? I mean, in Chatalhuyak, for example, uh, there are a few, uh, you know, the grave goods, so to speak, you know, what people are buried with, uh, are, don't show any huge signs of inequality at all, but there are two, uh, as I wrote in The Chalice and the Blade, two uh, types of graves that had what they, what archaeologists uh, who have excavated Chatalhuya, which is the largest Neolithic site uh, actually ever excavated, uh, that was peaceful for a thousand years, and that's the place where I just said 
uh, there are no signs that there was gender inequality. But what uh, we find there is that there are two special graves, and one, and they decided that they were graves of priestesses and priests, and the graves of the that they thought were of priestesses had mirrors, whereas the priests had sort of special belts of some kind. So yes, I think that there were. Uh, it wasn't a completely flat organization. You know, I make a distinction in my work because we need new words between hierarchies of domination and we know those you know it's like in later art we see rulers you know on elevated pedestals with you know their subjects groveling before them and usually they're bigger uh, you know the rulers are their males by then uh, are bigger uh, whereas uh, you know then, then they're called subjects uh, what we really um, seem to see there are more hierarchies of actualization where power is uh, used not to dominate, you know, the, the blade is the symbol of the power and domination systems, to, 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 to take life, to, you know, to instill fear, uh, but uh, to support life and to nurture life and to illuminate life, which of course is the symbol of the chalice in the title of my book, The Chalice and the Blade. So, yes, it's inference, but we can infer quite a few things, can't we? And for me, one of the most interesting remains from Minoan Crete is the so-called procession fresco, where instead of being, well, first of all, the central figure is a female, a woman, a high priestess, bare-breasted, you know, the best symbolizing not only sexuality but also the power to nurture with her arms raised in benediction you know the Pope still has the same gesture but rather than being on an elevated pedestal she and the priests who are bringing offerings to her are on the same level so yes she has power but it's more the power to bless isn't it mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's specifically female as symbolized through the breast, which that's where I'm thinking equality doesn't mean that men and women are doing exactly the same things or able to do the same things. We're we're different. And, you know, Max Dashu, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with her work, she and I had a conversation about gender and how the way it's constructed under patriarchy is it's a social system of subordinating females to males, but in egalitarian societies, gender could be the culture that's based off of the biology that, that you know, is a beautiful thing, like women breastfeeding together in a circle and somebody painting that and making a beautiful work of art uh, around that. You know, it's only women that are going to be breastfeeding. There's nothing bad about that or wrong about that. And so instead of, like, this call to abolish gender, rather let's – this was what Max was arguing, and I'm not sure where I stand on this, actually, as as a feminist and with today's lingo the way that it is. But not to abolish gender, but to create gender in a way that, is egalitarian and respectful of the differences between men and women. 
Well, this is, of course, you know, the the, um, the slogan that we hear so much about valuing diversity, isn't it? I mean, it's not about everybody being the same. That's not what equality means. But it means more fluid gender roles, certainly, which is what we're seeing. You know, men are, so many young men and some older men are, you know, feeding babies, changing their diapers, you know, this quote, once despised women's work, which was anathema to so-called masculinity, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And women are entering positions of leadership, which, again, you know, was anathema to the notion that, uh, you know, um, women, and and women uh, have internalized a lot of this, you know, which is beginning to change, thank goodness, you know, that women are not fit to govern, women are not fit to make decisions, that that is, you know, the illogical, you know, they're emotional, I mean, of course, men are emotional too, but men get parceled out in domination system, only those emotions, contempt and anger, are that are appropriate for those who dominate, right? Whereas women get the so-called soft emotions, which is deprives men of their full humanity, just as uh, barring women from anger deprives women of our full humanity. So we're in a very interesting period right now of, of more gender fluidity, but also, and this is something I've worked on very, very hard, and my book on economics called The Real Wealth of Nations deals with uh, something that has been disastrous for women, men, and children of both genders, which is the devaluation, not only of women, uh, for so many millennia in most societies, you know, because, I mean, there are some, uh, and there are also periods where this changes, but also the devaluation of anything stereotypically considered feminine, such as caring, caregiving, and nonviolence, because that's what we have to really change, and it's only as the status of women rises, as it did uh, in nations like Sweden, Finland, Norway, that you can have more caring policies, because caring, and men, not only women, vote for them because as the status of women rises, men no longer find it such a threat to their so-called masculinity to also embrace the so-called feminine. Mm. It's about systems dynamics. And mm-hmm. that's what my work is about. It's not about simple causes and effects, just as it isn't about you know, so-called patriarchy against so-called matriarchy. It's about a whole different frame mm-hmm. for looking at human possibilities. And it's a frame that actually is more congruent with both the evidence that we have today from neuroscience about human possibilities, the evidence from archaeology, from anthropology. But it's not an easy frame for people to switch to because we're so used to these terms like matriarchy, patriarchy, left versus right, etc. Hey, Jenna, that's an awesome shirt you're wearing. That coffee looks so tasty and warm. And the slogan, women are why I get up in the morning, really resonates with me. Where'd you get that shirt? I ordered the shirt online from WLRN. It's the winning design from their 2017 t-shirt design contest. A t-shirt design contest? 
Wow, who was the winning designer? Casey Mills, a lesbian radical feminist from Baltimore. I think it's great how she paired such a woman-centric slogan with a steaming cup of coffee. Me too. I love women and coffee. How can I get one of those shirts? Just go to wlrnmedia.wordpress.com and click on the donate button. When the PayPal screen comes up, be sure to add the size of the shirt you want in the special instructions box. If you want to see all the other awesome design submissions, then visit the t-shirt contest tab. Hmm, money is kind of tight right now. How long will the shirts be available? WLRN is taking pre-orders for the entire month of January. A whole month for pre-orders? That's great. Do you know where the proceeds are going? They're donating a portion of the proceeds to the We Want the Land Coalition to maintain, preserve, and conserve around 650 acres of woman-only land near the Manistee National Forest in Michigan. You can find out more about this fundraiser at www.tlc.org. Thanks, Jenna. I can't wait to order shirts for all my woman-loving, coffee-drinking friends. You are listening to WLRN. Brought to you by the totally excellent radical feminists at Women's Women's Liberation Liberation Radio Radio News. News. a place I know Only I can go Depending upon what region of the world we look at, anything resembling what I call a gynocentric culture has not existed for hundreds or thousands of years. Patriarchal, androcratic, misogynistic societies have been universal on our planet for millennia, and realistically, we have little reason to believe that this will change anytime soon. There are many different factors involved in the potential shifting from male-dominated, male-controlled, and male-centric culture to female-centric culture, but the most fundamental change, the first step, is a shift in female consciousness. Knowing our history, women's history, is one piece of this shift, but vision is the other. As feminist women, if we have any serious interest in creating even small subcultures that are gynocentric, we have to be brave enough to imagine without limits. A gynocentric society is the material result of successful feminism. It's not just a matrilineal or matrifocal society, one that privileges mothers and locates female power and value in motherhood. It is not matriarchy, or the inverse of patriarchy, where women oppress men and each other, and society is organized on a model of the dominating mother at the top of a hierarchical structure. A gynocentric culture is one that centers females, the female experience, the female perspective, and female well-being. A gynocentric culture is one in which all women, regardless of their relationship to males, have power, freedom, and value. A gynocentric culture is one that reflects the female in her most natural state, free of all the distortions and perversions that men put on us. It is a culture where all women and girls are female-identified, not male-identified. A culture ruled by female values, not male values. It is a culture where women live and act 
not in service of male interests, male pleasure, or male approval, but only in service of female interests, pleasure, and well-being. And in a mixed gynocentric society, the males too would put female well-being, perspective, and interests first. A gynocentric culture is a culture without misogyny, without rape, without violence against women and girls. We may not be able to create a nationwide or worldwide gynocentric culture, but even if we want to try creating one in our own individual lives, imagination is key. We should allow ourselves to envision what a gynocentric community, culture, or society could look like now or in the future without being limited by our current reality or even by the more woman-friendly cultures of prehistory. Creating a gynocentric culture does not simply mean flipping the role of mother matriarch in a heterosexual nuclear family with the father patriarch role. It does not mean everything stays structurally the same, but women get government-funded daycare for their kids who they continue to birth in heterosexual marriages. A gynocentric society would be utterly unrecognizable to us compared to the patriarchal, androcratic culture we've all lived in since birth. I can't tell you exactly what a 21st century gynocentric culture would look like, but I do know that a gynocentric culture is one that honors lesbians. You could argue that lesbian communities are the only true gynocentric cultures that have existed so far in the world, being that they are both exclusively female and based on a shared love of women. Of course, lesbians exist in the misogynistic and male-centric world, whether they like it or not and any subculture or community they create still exists in that world. So it's fair to say that what few lesbian-only cultures exist, if any, are not perfectly gynocentric. They're not as good as they could be if all lesbians were female-identified feminists living in a lesbian-loving, woman-loving world. But lesbian culture is a starting point. When we look to the past for examples of gynocentric culture, we can't forget to look at the lesbian feminist communities, spaces, and lands of the 1970s and 80s. Lesbian feminists are the examples all other women should look to when they consider how to become the kind of women who create gynocentric culture. Why? Because lesbian feminists in the 20th century and today are the one group of women on earth who have already done the work of determining who they are independently of men. Without deprogramming a lifetime's worth of male identification, internalized misogyny, and the impulse to please males, a woman can't create gynocentric culture. She will only recreate the male supremacist culture that instilled male values in her, even if she does it in female-only space. If women want things to be different, they have to think and act differently themselves. We will not realize a woman-loving, woman-centric society by continuing to live and think the way we always have in the context of this misogynistic, male-dominated world. Gynocentric culture, like historical matrifocal societies, is not achieved at the male whim, but first in the female consciousness. That's the purpose of feminism, to change the female mind, which ultimately leads to a woman acting for female liberation and power. This feminist consciousness raising is a constant process, not something that you achieve with finality and can then forget about. We're constantly submerged in the woman-hating, male-worshipping mainstream culture of our mixed societies and of whatever mixed subcultures we choose to be in. That male supremacist messaging, not to mention the demands of men, never stops. 
so our feminist consciousness raising can never stop. A gynocentric culture is one full of female-identified women who are loyal to other women first and foremost, not men. If we're talking about a gynocentric culture that isn't a lesbian separatist one, then this includes heterosexual women who continue to be sexually involved with men. And it includes mothers of sons. Is this even possible? Is it possible for women to be sexually engaged with men in a mixed culture and still put other women first, personally and politically? How do heterosexual women and mothers of sons become that female identified? What would that kind of society look like? How would it work? How would those women structure their personal relationships based on their love, focus, and prioritization of women over men? How would they live their daily lives thinking of their own and other women's interests first? What would the relationship between these heterosexual women and lesbians be in this gynocentric culture? Would marriage still exist? Would the nuclear family still exist? Would choosing a domestic or life partner based on romantic sexuality still be the dominant social model? What would female friendship look like? What would female relationships in general look like in a culture where women don't police each other into obeying male rules, where heterosexual women don't compete for male attention, and where heterosexual and bisexual women care more about lesbians than they care about men? There are more questions than answers about gynocentric culture, but it's important for women to think beyond our current reality, just as it's important for us to know our history. We could have something different than this. We could create communities, a subculture, where women love and prioritize other women instead of men, and where everything is driven by a desire for female well-being. We could create a subculture that operates on female values instead of male values. But first, we have to figure out what female values are. And developing a feminist consciousness through critical thinking and creativity is the only way to do that. That concludes WLRN's Edition 21 on Ancient Matrifocal Societies and Gynocentric Cultures, produced by Jenna DeQuarto with tender loving care. Thanks for joining us. I'm Sekhmet Shiawal. And I'm Thistle Patterson. If you'd like to get in touch with WLRN, please contact us at wlrnewscontact at gmail.com. Also, be sure to tune in for the live interview I will be doing with Megan Murphy of Feminist Current and Julie Bindle of The Guardian on Monday, March 19th at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time on WORT 89.9 FM. It would be great to get as many feminists as possible to call into the station that night in the second half of the program to ask my guests questions on the air. Go to wortfm.org and click on Listen Live the night of the show. WLRN would like to thank our interviewees for giving us their time and wisdom for this edition. This is Julia Beck wishing you a happy new year and a lovely January. And I'm Amanda. Be sure to tune in for WLRN's next edition on the politics of romantic and sexual relationships, coming out on February 1st, 2018. Let's reflect on notions of romantic love as we move into the month that celebrates the commercialized holiday known as Valentine's Day. 
This is Jenna DeQuarto. Many of today's musical selections came from WLRN's Music Hour, DJed by our beloved Phoenix. Be sure to tune in every other Monday for a new mix from Phoenix. You can find her music shows on our WordPress site under our Podcasts tab. Patriarchal kiss. How will we find what needs to be shown? And then after that, where is home? Tell me, where is my home? Cause gender hurts.